Good evening, and the Lord bless you. I realize some of you have come to hear Major Thomas. Uh, maybe the Lord wanted you to hear what I have to say. God has wondrous ways of working and speaking to people, and uh, I trust he will. If you've joined us for this evening for the first time, I began a series uh, last evening. It seems a long time ago now. This is the fourth message. We're talking about what's missing in your Christian life. As I've traveled the world in these last 20-odd years, working with pastors and missionaries and in churches, I found so many Christians who they know they're saved, but they're so dissatisfied with the kind of life they're living. They realize there's something missing. And so sometimes they go chasing one idea and another, get involved with this and this, uh, always hoping they can find what's missing. And uh, I'm taking a series which I think could help in this area. And we began last night talking about the missing experience. And we looked in, you needn't look there now, Colossians chapter 2, and we found this amazing truth that we are complete in Christ. Not you will be, you are now. You needn't go searching for any other ideas of any kind. When you were saved, God gave you Christ, and God has nothing more for you as long as you live. He couldn't give you any more, and you couldn't get by on any less. And then we saw how it was. When you're first saved, you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by his death for you. And then we looked in Romans 5, 8, 9, and 10, and we found to the surprise of some of us that we're not saved by the death of Christ, we're reconciled by the death of Christ so that we can be saved by his life. There's two, we're complete in Christ, but we only begin to experience completeness, not sinless perfection, there's no such thing, a completeness when we take all that God gives. We begin with the wondrous reconciling death of Christ, sins forgiven, a home in heaven. Then we found the much more in Romans 5.10. Because we're reconciled, we can be saved, daily delivered from sin's dominion by his resurrection life. And that's the whole secret of what's missing in your life. Everything begins there. It's all in Christ. And that could be a problem. Then, this morning, we thought, well, if I am complete in Christ... How is it that I cannot make it? And so we spoke about the missing word in your life, your Christian life. And we looked through the teaching of our Lord, and we found there was one word which he stressed again and again, which is almost forgotten in much preaching today. And that word is repentance. It was a key word in all the preaching of the Lord on earth. When he commissioned the church, he told them that remission and repentance should be preached. We saw in Revelation, even from the glory, he preached repentance. And we thought, why is repentance not so popular today? It used to be, it was, it was commanded by God, but we evade the issue and we realize mainly because we think repentance is a negative thing. It's a no-no. But we found that repentance is one of the most positive words in the Bible. Repentance is turning from the garbage of your own life, emptying your hands of your old life, and taking all that God has for you in Christ. And we realize that with many of us, it's honest ignorance. We were never told about the importance of repentance. We were told only believe. And when you only believe to your old lifestyle, you add a Jesus experience. It becomes Jesus also. And it never works that way. Because as we saw with Lazarus, the Lord brought him back to life. Then the Lord said, loose him and let him go. And repentance is loosing your old grave clothes of your old life. But many of us were never taught that. It isn't our fault, it's honest ignorance. But you realize why you can never live the life God intended you to do if you drag along your old lifestyle behind you. And please remember, the Lord will never take anything out of your life which is any good to you. And if he does, he'll give you something in its place which is a million times better. 
But the devil always emphasizes, boy, if you repent, you'll lose all this and you'll lose this. And what will your life be like? You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. And repentance is seen as a negative thing. That's the devil's gospel. Repentance is receiving all that God has. And we saw right through the word of God how the early church majored on that word. And we thought this morning how few evangelists use that word today. It's only believe. And if you say only believe, if people come to Christ on an only believe challenge, then they're sent out, out condemned to live a defeated life forevermore. Because you can't live the true Christian life with the garbage of your own life around you. Then we thought in the last session this morning of the missing name in the uh, life of a Christian. And we looked in Matthew chapter 1, and we saw the two names of our Lord given in Matthew 1, Jesus, and the other name was Emmanuel. And we thought of all the hymns we sing with Jesus in, rightly so. But you see, Jesus is God for me on the cross. Emmanuel is God with me. And that's the whole plan of the gospel. God for me, God with me. And if you only know Jesus dying on the cross, thank God if you know that much, you're simply, recon you're simply reconciled to God. The sheer wonder of knowing the living Christ, Emmanuel, God with me. And we thought how few hymns there are with Emmanuel in them. And we did a, a, a Bible study on Ahaz, the biggest rebel in the Bible. And it was to him that God gave that glorious prophecy. And we saw a young man in his 20s harassed in every area by problems and difficulties, never turning to God, and how God promised him that someday a virgin would give birth to a little child, and the child would be Emmanuel. And he would be God's answer to those with problems and difficulties and fears. And please, turn belief into behavior. Don't gather nuggets of truth and do nothing with them. Better have a few nuggets of truth that you use than lashings of gospel uh, teaching with no use for it. Realize that the living Christ, it, it's good theology, but it, it's the whole way in which we live. Remember, the death of Christ doesn't qualify you to live. The death of Christ qualifies you to die and go to heaven as a forgiven sinner. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. Now tonight, uh, having I've gone that resume of what I said before, because tonight you'll see now we're going a little deeper. You need to know the previous in order to get the present now. I'm talking about the missing privilege in the life of the believer. The missing privilege. And when you find what it is, you won't believe it. You'll say ridiculous. Can't possibly be so. But if you fit this message into the other three, it'll make sense to you. Look with me in Philippians and chapter 1. And in this verse, we have two privileges given to a Christian. The first one you'll agree with. The second one you'll say, oh, <laughs> you must be joking. Well, we'll read it. Verse 29. Philippians 1, verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him. Now, we all agree with that, the privilege of believing on Christ. Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we're talking about the privilege of suffering. And you say, did I hear you say the privilege of suffering? Right, you did. You say, boy, who wants that? You must be joking. The privilege of suffering? Yes, but listen. Think of what we've said so far. And you'll see how the thing works out. The privilege of suffering. It's unfortunate that... Uh, today, maybe not so much just now, but a, a few years ago when we had a lady called Catherine Kuhlman and other people who were emphasizing divine healing. Now, I believe in divine healing. I do, really do. 
But when we had this tremendous emphasis on divine healing, uh, we met people, Christine and I, who were spending hours lining up and going hundreds of miles searching for divine healing. And all the time, they may have been missing the privilege of divine suffering. You think I'm joking? Well, look with me in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2. I want to show you the suffering in the life of our Lord Jesus. I want to show you something which maybe you've never realized. That God the Father deliberately planned suffering into the life of his Son. He deliberately planned suffering. Now, many of his, us here are parents. How many of us parents would deliberately plan suffering into the lives of our children? Why, you say, we, we, we would never dream of such a thing. We want to make things easy for them. Maybe that's where we've gone wrong in this generation. Making it too easy for them. I was discussing with somebody recently a new psychological phenomenon. It's called prolonged adolescence. It's in, it isn't a joke, it's an actual fact. It's in many countries today, prolonged adolescence. People of 20 and 21 who will not step out into life. Who want to shelter want to stay at home, or somewhere to lean on. Prolonged adolescence. Now you go back to the early days of Texas. You had pre-adulthood. You had boys and girls of 14 and 15 who were men and women. Boys of 14 and 15 who fought battles and struggled and made it. That's what made America where it is today. The pre-adult adulthood of young people of a gener or two generations ago, more generations ago, where they just became men overnight. How? By reading books. Going to school? No. You don't become that kind of a person by reading books or going to school. Just by suffering. The covered wagons going across America. Women having babies on the way and just going on. The, the early settlers, marvelous people who made this country, who put the backbone into this country. Now it hasn't got a backbone, it's got a wishbone. That's right. The backbone's missing. And backbone only comes through suffering. Now look how God deliberately plans suffering into the life of his son. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Talking of God. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, that's you and me, to make the captain of their salvation, that's our Lord Jesus the leader, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, plural, perfect through sufferings. Now that sounds blasphemy. It really does. Do you mean that Jesus wasn't perfect? Perish the thought, God forbid. He, was, he wasn't only the Son of God, he was God the Son. And yet the Word of God rightly teaches that God deliberately planned suffering into the life of our Lord to make him perfect. A better word is complete. To make him into a complete character. God did that into the life of Christ. How do you understand that? Well, think of it this way. When our Lord was in heaven in glory before he came to this earth, we know from Revelation, and thank God it's true, there's no suffering there, no pain, no death, no separation, no tears, no tragedy. And in a human sense, in his humanity, our Lord had no compact, no contact with suffering. But to be made a complete person, God deliberately planned suffering into the life of Christ. Do you realize you cannot be a complete person without suffering? Strange. Nobody wants it. We wouldn't choose it. 
But the, yes, the strength of your character, inward character, is the way you've handled suffering. You show me people who've had it easy, who've been brought up in a home where they've been spoiled and they've had all that they wanted, have never had to struggle for anything, have always had what they wanted. You show me somebody with no guts, no character, no backbone. Just think of it. God deliberately planned suffering into the life of his son so that he might become a complete person. Now look in chapter 5. Again, another almost blasphemy verse. Verse 7 of chapter 5 in Hebrews. Talking of our Lord. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, this is your Savior, Jesus. Prayers, supplications, strong crying, tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Now here's the verse. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. You mean that Jesus was disobedient? Perish the thought. I do always those things that please the Father. But can you see there is a quality of obedience which can only be achieved and comprehended and learned through suffering? Some of you older men may have been Marines or you may have sons who've been in the Marines. I've got one or two friends who were in the Marines and their Marines are reckoned to be the toughest in any army in the world. And you speak with these men who have stuck it out through the years, especially in the training, not so much today, they're, they're making it a little bit quieter and more peaceful. But it used to be one suffering experience. I remember one friend saying to me, you'd get dressed out in spotless whites, absolutely spotless whites, and you'd march along with a whole crowd of your buddies, and they'd take you right through a field of mud, and then the order would come down, and you'd go flat out. Yeah, yeah. Filthy, dirty mud, all that lovely. And you learned that when you heard the word down, you went down, because that might save your life in combat. And the only way you can learn obedience in the military sense is by suffering. You can read all the books on preparation for battle and be nothing. The only way, as old Churchill said, blood, toil, tears and sweat. Being made complete, being made obedient, and God planned it into the life of his son. Now, as I mentioned before, by and large, worldwide, especially in our, quote, civilized countries, we have a lot of people who are incomplete. And we have, uh, I suppose, this is the most disobedient generation who ever lived. I suppose in one sense you could say, looking across the, quote, civilized world, the way people are reacting and acting they demonstrate incompleteness and they demonstrate disobedience. And this is especially so in the Christian world. Our churches are filled with believers. Sure, they've been born again, their sins are forgiven, they've got a home in heaven. But they're incomplete. You meet elders or deacons in churches if they don't get their own way, they sulk like little babies. I I'm thinking of cases I know. And you meet people who are disobedient in our churches. When was the last time they used discipline in your church? You can't remember. And yet, years ago, a church exercised discipline. And if you didn't shape up, you got called before the deacons or the pastor and you were told to shape up or shape out. And you shaped up. 
and there was some form of discipline. Now you have even the pastors who need to be disciplined and need to shape up. You see that the whole thing is cracking and breaking open wide. Missing out on these two very things that God majored in with his own son. Completeness and obedience. Now this is why I'm talking about the privilege of suffering. God is prepared to do for you what he did for his own son. I might ask this question, who did not see the royal wedding? How dare you? <laughs> uh, generally speaking, most Americans, some of them even got up early. But you saw a young man there, a Prince of Wales, who I suppose he is one of the most complete, obedient men in Britain. Maybe you didn't know, but when his father, the Duke of Edinburgh, married his mother, who was then Princess Elizabeth, they made a decision that when she became queen, she would rule the country and he would rule the family. He became the ruler in the family. And until that time, all the royal children had been raised in palaces with tutors brought in who uh, treated them as if they were royalty, which of course they were. But then, uh, Duke of Edinburgh, he wanted his children, his sons, to be brought up as men. And so the Prince of Wales was the victim number one in this area. And he was sent to an ordinary school. And then later on, to his horror, I'm sure, he was sent to a school in Arbroath in the south of Scotland. And this was a school that was run by a German uh, expert in the education of boys. His whole plan was to develop a system of education which turned boys into men, fully completed men capable of leadership and obedience. A very tough school. And the Prince of Wales went to that school. And he was treated just like anybody else. They slept in bunk beds in uh, barrack rooms. They had a three or four mile run every morning, hail, rain or shine. He got 30 cents a week pocket money like anybody else. I can remember how parents used to say, hey, well, look, the prince only gets 30 cents a week pocket money. <laughs> and uh, he, did, he did all kinds. He emptied trash cans and dried dishes and did the whole works. When he finished third, he went to Australia, to the timber tops, another tough school. And all the way through, and each prince in turn has followed his elder brother's footsteps. And then when he finished there, having got a good degree from a university, the prince was in the army. He became a qualified army officer capable of driving tanks. He was in the air force. He can fly jets and helicopters. In the navy, he was captain of his own ship. That lad can do anything. He can meet with humble people. He can talk with the humble. He can walk with the mighty. Any job you mention, he can do it. That's the way his father brought him up. His father determined that he would be made complete and obedient. What God did for his son, the Duke of Edinburgh is doing for his son. Now, I've mentioned that because you have mothers and fathers in England today who want their sons to go to the same school the princes went to so that they can say, oh, my son goes to the same school the prince went to, sleeps in the same bed, you know, sits at the same desk, all to get some reflected glory from what the prince did. The mothers may want it, the kids don't. <laughs> Who wants to go and be chased around like that? People wouldn't choose that kind of thing for themselves. Jesus didn't choose it for himself. God chose it. That his son would move into this kind of upbringing. Just like the Duke chose it for his three sons. And the youngest one is on his way through it now. And they're fine lads. You saw the two brothers riding in the carriage together. The prince and his, and his elder brother. His uh, second one is just the same. 
and something I didn't know until a little while ago, maybe you didn't know, but because of assassinations of leaders, the second brother, there's no uh, general fuss about, about this, it isn't ballyhooed abroad, but the second brother is back up to the Prince of Wales. Everything the Prince of Wales does, the second brother is trained in it too. And the next one will be trained the same way. So that if the Prince of Wales is murdered, then you have somebody else to fill that same place. That's the mind of a man who believes in authority and discipline and leadership. Now I come back to my title of my message, The Privilege of Suffering. If you can only get away from the world's thoughts about sufferings, I agree, nobody wants to suffer. But you know, in a strange way, God often does his greatest deeds and blessings through suffering. The cross, of course, is the most perfect example. And every mother here knows that that's the way babies come, only through suffering. This is the way God planted. That's why babies are so precious to mothers. If you only pressed a button and boop, the baby came. <laughs> Who would be interested? But when you've, when you've gone through nine months of increasing tension, and then those hours of agony of delivery, that baby represents a lot to you. And that's why, through suffering. Suffering makes things precious. For example, a great missionary lady, she's dead now, uh, Amy Carmichael, who lived in England, went to India as a missionary and chose to stay out there, never took one furlough in her life, went out as a young girl and stayed to the end, wrote some wonderful poetry, told some marvelous stories. She became crippled and spent most of her missionary life in bed as a cripple, suffering constant pain. And she tells a lovely story about one day visiting a goldsmith in one of these Indian little towns. And here was the quaint old craftsman with his little uh, container in which the gold ore was put, and gold ore just looks like dirt. But if you're an expert, you can recognize the dirt as gold ore. And he put it in this container. And then he applied heat and more heat and more heat, and the whole thing melted. And the gold, being a heavy metal, went to the bottom. And the, the scum came to the top. And then he very carefully skimmed off all the dregs at the top. Then he heated the whole thing again. And again, more scum came to the top, and the gold dropped to the bottom. And he removed that scum ever so carefully, making sure there was no gold taken. Then the whole thing again. And she said to him, Sir, how long do you go on heating this gold, applying pressure and heat? And he said, Until I can see my own face reflected in the gold. Can you see it? Until there's a reflection. That's what suffering does. It makes you unconsciously Christ-like. The gold eventually begins to appear. And God sees himself, if I may say brevity, reflected in your human character. There's no other way you can do it. Now, let me again show you. Look with me in Matthew 26. I'm talking now of suffering as the source of our salvation. Suffering as the source of our salvation. When we're talking of the sufferings of our Lord, we almost always consider and think on the cross. Rightly so. And the crown of thorns and the nails and the spear and the flogging. But I'm looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's a quality of suffering here which I think we often overlook. So I'm reading in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here 
while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And please notice, he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Notice those words, the, the correct English. He began to be. This was a first time experience for our Lord. He began to be sorrowful. Sorrowful means full of sorrow. Now, we humans, we have a capacity for sorrow, but our capacity for sorrow is very shallow. It doesn't take much sorrow to fill our cup of sorrow. But our Lord was perfect humanity, and his capacity for sorrow was like a bottomless well. And yet, here, it began to fill up. All the bottomless capacity for suffering was filling up. Don't miss that. And it says he began to be very heavy. The w a better translation for very heavy in our modern language is deeply depressed. Now, I thank God he's never called me to pass through times of depression. Maybe someone listening here or later on by tape, maybe you have times of depression. I know people who go that way and they can't explain it. They try to talk about the weights and the blackness and the emptiness and the darkness. But I wouldn't know. But maybe somebody here knows about it. Now, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Did you know that? He knows exactly how you feel because he was deeply depressed. The next verse explains a little more. Verse 38. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. Now our Lord didn't exaggerate. He had no need to. He's just teaching the truth. Exceeding sorrowful. Even unto death. Now don't miss that. Jesus is actually saying the sorrow he is undergoing was enough to kill him. He could have died in the garden of Gethsemane with the agony and the awfulness of the inward sorrow that he had. But of course the scripture had to be fulfilled and he died on the cross, but he could have died in the garden. The Lord said so, even unto death. And then verse 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. Don't miss those words, fell on his face. Every picture you've seen of the Lord in Gethsemane, he's been kneeling. I'm sure he began that way. Notice he was flat on his face, his face in the dirt and his hands outstretched. This was the, the weight of sorrow dragging him, forcing him down. He had to be prostrate because Luke says his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling into the ground. If he'd been kneeling, it'd have soaked into his garments. But it was into the ground. And Luke says an angel came and helped him to his feet. This was the agony of sorrow that we can't comprehend. Verse 39 says, He went a little farther and fell on his face. If they looked with me, uh, sorry, in verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 44, he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Do you see what was causing the sorrow? It was a cup. The cup. Three times he prayed about a cup that was being offered to him. If you've ever wondered what the cup was, turn with me back in Psalm 75. Psalm 75 and verse 8. 
the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. Now please notice what this cup is. It's a cup of judgment. Notice where it is. It's in the hand of God. Notice for whom it's planned. It's for the wicked, for sinners. And realize, maybe for the first time, this is your cup. This is the cup for all the sinners. And this is the cup that's being offered in Matthew 26 to our Lord Jesus. Now later on this week, as we come to other messages, I'll talk more about that cup. But to realize, this is the cup that's being offered to our Lord. Three times he cried, but he got no answer. And from there, of course, he rose to his feet, he was arrested, and the whole miserable story goes on right to the end, until he cried it is finished. But realize that suffering is the source of our salvation, and God planned it that way. I think of our one daughter and our three sons, and you have children, and how we've planned everything that would help them, and we want them to go on and do. It's strange how each generation wants their own kids to do better than you've done, and uh, I think our kids have, and I hope that their, our grandchildren will do better than they do. I hope. It's a, a hope, but I hope so. But we all think that way. None of us would deliberately plan suffering unless you're the Duke of Edinburgh. Unless you've got vision, you've got vision. I think of one uh, wealthy man I met, a man who was a millionaire, and uh, it wasn't really suffering, but he said, you know, my kids know that when I die, there is nothing for them at all. Everything I've got is already earmarked for missions and the Lord's work at home and abroad. There's nothing for them. I gave them an education. I set them up. I said, now it's over to you. Over you go. Not many people do that. He said, I want them to make it on their own. That isn't real suffering, but it's the same idea. Choosing to plan so that you, you take away the props and you throw them in the deep end and get yourself out. It's like when you um, punish children. I remember when I was with Fred in, in Sweden and uh, Wally Schoon is, is Wally, Wally still there, isn't he, Fred? Wally Schoon was telling me about this. There's a law in Sweden, or there, is it a recent one, Fred? Not allowed to punish children. And uh, Fred, Wally had taken his uh, son and his daughter out to a home for a meal. And one of the kids there, a little boy, he uh, began to be very naughty. And he reacted strongly and he took his dinner and threw at his mother and kicked her and punched her. And his mother was wiping the dinner off and just smiling and just smiling and just smiling. You're not allowed to punish your children. You can be arrested by the police. And so Wally's little daughter thought she tried on too. So he took her outside the room and uh, changed her opinion. <laughs> and brought her back. And these people said, if you were Swedish, we'd have reported you to the police. What kind of a generation will they raise? Where you cut out punishment. We spoke of that this morning. I told you the little girl who said, my daddy loves me enough to punish me. And God wasn't punishing his son. He was just planning your salvation. And his beloved, beloved son had to be made complete and learn a quality of obedience which can only come through suffering. That's why I suppose you hear those words, not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done.
Now, look with me again as suffering as the strength of our salvation. Look in 2 Corinthians and look with me in chapter 11. Say verse 16 of chapter 11. I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. And so he goes on uh, boasting. Uh, verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they children of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Now I'm speaking as a fool. I am more. Then he gives a whole list of things that he suffered. Terrifying things that he suffered. You read this and get a, a history book to teach what it is. And you realize the awful things. Just one thing here. Verse 24, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. When the Romans conquered a nation, they allowed them great freedom. Certain things they denied them. One was capital punishment. They were denied the death sentence. That's why they took our Lord to Pilate to get his signature on the death warrant to crucify our Lord. The, the worst thing the Jews could give was forty stripes, save one. Thirty-nine stripes. Not sergeant stripes, but wounding stripes. And when it was given, the victim was spread-eagled and stripped. And the brute of a man had a short-handled whip with many thongs and pieces of bone and metal set in these long thongs. Buckets of water and someone to count. Because you had to endure every stroke consciously. And the man keeping score said, one and the executioner lashed with all his force, and these thongs wrapped round your body, and he dragged them off, tearing skin and lacerating bone. Then he would say, two. And if you fainted, buckets of water brought you back. If you died, that was your fault. You weren't supposed to. If you were blinded by these blows, that was your fault. It was, we're sorry but you're, that you're blinded. And this went on to 39. Then they cut the man down and he was a quivering mass of bleeding humanity. Now read that verse again. Verse 24. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Five times being strung up and lashed. 195 multiple lashes on his body. No wonder he says, I bear the marks of Christ. But the whole point of chapter 11 is this. All the wounds healed. Sure, they left scars and marks, but they healed. But chapter 12 is different. I read chapter 12. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. He was caught up to paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. And of course, most of you know he's talking of himself. We'll see in a moment, he was that man, whether physically or in the spirit. He went to the third heaven, he went to paradise, and he saw and heard things, and he was told not to tell anybody what he heard or saw, which is very interesting because John was told to write what he saw. But Paul was said, no way. Reading in verse 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations. See, it was him. Unless he got a swollen head and became, you know, oh, I'm the man who did all this. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, this is the famous passage of Paul's thorn in the flesh. And different commentators have tried to work out what he was suffering from. 
But the Bible doesn't tell us, which is just as well, because if we knew exactly what his complaint was, only those people who had that suffering could be blessed by this passage. But because we don't know, anybody who is suffering can move into the blessing displayed here. One thing we do know, there are two Greek words, each translated by the one word thorn. One is acanthus, A-C-A-N-T-H-U-S, that's the thorn on roses and shrubs. We have a shrub in England which is called the acanthus, has spiky thorns on it. And there's one other word which is only used once in the whole Bible, and this is the place where it's used, a thorn in the flesh. And the Greek word is scallops, S-K-O-L-O-P-S. And scallops has nothing to do with thorns on trees. Some of you have gardens back home, and sometimes you get little trees with tall, thin stems. And while they're little trees, you get a sharp-pointed wooden stake, and you drive the stake into the ground, and you tie your little tree to support it. Now, scallops is a sharp-pointed wooden stake. Now, obviously, he didn't have a, an actual wooden stake driven through his body, but it felt like that. You could see the results before and at the rear. And uh, every movement must have been agony. What it was, we have no idea. It was just like a wooden stake driven right through your body. No wonder he cried to God three times, just like our Lord cried three times. And you know what he would say, you do the same thing. He would say, God, I, I'm your number one missionary man. Lord, I, I'm writing the New Testament. God, God, heal me. Lord, the stronger I am, the better I am. Lord, heal me. Restore me. And you know, these same people who go chasing for divine healing, they say, if you have enough faith, you can be healed of anything. And they sometimes make parents feel so guilty when they say, you know, if you had enough faith, your child would be healed. And they say this to parents with mongoloid children and other children who are retarded in different ways. If you had enough faith, your child would be healed. As if the parents haven't got enough agony of soul already without piling guilt onto them. But listen, who had more faith than Paul? Nobody. He cried, he agonized three times. It wasn't healed. Did he deserve it? Was he worthy? Of course he was. But he wasn't healed. God answered. God didn't answer Christ. God answered Paul. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect, complete, the same word as for our Lord, complete in your weakness. The, the correct word is in your weakness. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul would say, Lord, the stronger I am, the better I am. And God said, no, my son, you got it wrong. The weaker you are. You're more used to me with that thorn than without it. Terrifying thought. Now, Paul can do one of two things. He can do what a lot of people do today. God, why me, God? Why me? Look what I've done for you. Why should I suffer this? He could fight it. He could say, as some people would say, Well, Lord, if that's the way you're going to treat me, I'm, I'm signing off. I'm finished. You get somebody else to finish the Bible. I've had enough. And some people today would react like that. Why me? You can either fight it, or you can accept it. And uh, the strength of salvation is when you accept it. He didn't ask for it. He didn't want it. He, he agonized about it. But God said, listen, you're more used to me with the thorn. See, the thorn didn't spoil God's purpose. The thorn was part of God's plan for his life. See, we're talking of the privilege of suffering. And what God can do through suffering. And Paul was the man that he was. 
because he chose. Well, look what he said. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in persecutions for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Contradiction, total contradiction. When I am weak, then I am strong. Strong in the strength of another. We're talking of suffering as the strength of our salvation. We've seen suffering as the source of our salvation in our Lord, as the strength of our salvation. And we've been talking about the privilege of suffering. See, to, to most people, suffering, like repentance, is a negative thing. It's who wants to suffer? It's totally negative. Is it? See, repentance in many people's eyes is totally negative. It's a no-no. No. Repentance is one of the most positive words in the Bible. It sets you free to be what God wants you to be. And suffering can be one of the most positive things in your life. It's a complete contradiction. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are my ways. God may have chosen you to go this way because through you he can do something special. You know, at last year's Bible school in England, we had about 200 students from 23 different countries. And we had a girl from Scotland. And uh, she was a dwarf about so high. And when the, she, she could sing... When the choir sang, you had a whole crowd of girls, and then like this, you know. <laughs> and she was a student there. Remember her? That's right. Uh, he remembers her. And uh, one day when I was there, I got speaking to her, and I said, I say, tell me, how do you cope with being a dwarf? I said, no boyfriend, no babies, no home, no future. How do you cope? And she said, well, at first I couldn't. And then I heard a preacher once say, wasn't thinking of me, but he said, God never makes a second. Let me explain that to you. I'm sure you'll follow in a moment, but in England we have marvelous pottery, China, very expensive. And you can buy this at very expensive. But they also sell seconds. Seconds have a little weakness here. And the price, they're much cheaper. And you can buy seconds. Seconds are, well, it, isn't, it, it didn't quite make it. So they're seconds. And uh, they're inferior and they're cheaper. I'm sure you can get seconds in America. And you get seconds? Yes, you get seconds. Well, she said, you know... God doesn't make any seconds. I'm not a second. I'm a one product of God. God. God has a plan for my life. He's made me this way. He's got a plan for my life. I thought, you giant. You may be a dwarf in size, but you're a giant in character. She had accepted. You see, you can either fight it or you can accept it. And she was accepting it on the fact that uh, God doesn't make any seconds. I'm not just enough. I'm not just one of God's failures. God doesn't have any failures. God has a plan for my life. He's going to use me. And Lord, I'm available to you. That's guts. That's courage. And there'll be some of you listening to my voice now. And maybe you have infirmities that uh, only you know. And uh, your life is going to be restricted because of physical weaknesses that you know of. And there are times when you feel like saying, God, why, why me? I mean, wh why, why me? And if you start saying, God, why me? You just switch off all the joy, all the power, all the possibility, all the capacity for being used. 
But if you can say, like Paul, most gladly, therefore, thank you, Father. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want it. I wouldn't have chosen it. But if this is part of your plan for my life, then I accept it. And when you can say from the heart, I accept it, then God can do marvelous things through you. But only He knows. See, that's how God did marvelous things through Paul. Because we're talking of the privilege of suffering. Suffering in the hands of God can be so marvelously positive. Makes you complete. You'll learn a unique quality of obedience. Are you interested? Makes you think? Well, let's come to the most important part of the message. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And for 60 seconds, we'll just sit still and do nothing. And the Lord will come to you. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you have a problem that nobody knows about. Or maybe God is preparing you for something that's going to happen in your future. God often does that in His mercy. Some of you fellas, some of you girls, you realize that life is not going to be what you thought it was going to be. And you want to kick out and lash out. And if you do, all you'll do is hurt yourself and you'll switch the power and the blessing off. But if you can say, like Paul said, God, I, I didn't choose it, I didn't want it, but I realize now that you have a plan for my life, I've got the privilege of going to the same school that Jesus went to. That's right, the same school that Jesus went to, where you'll learn completeness and obedience. So 60 seconds of quietness from now. Blessed Lord, you said in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world for you. And thank you, blessed Lord, as you indwell us by your Holy Spirit, and as we meet that tribulation and sorrow, when we hand over the whole situation to you, telling you our weakness and our incapacity for handling it, and we ask you to handle it for us, you will overcome it for us. In doing so, you'll reflect your own face in the gold, and somehow people will see a quality of life which is totally foreign to human living. They'll see maybe somebody suffering and yet with a quality of peace and inward joy which cannot be explained in human words, which is truly the life of Christ made manifest. So, Lord Jesus, take these words, bless them through the wondrous working of your own Holy Spirit, and may we be all the better for facing up to the fact that suffering is a positive experience and very often it can be a privilege. May this be true and so 
for your dear name's sake. Amen.